You're listening to an ACA podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art and welcome to tonight's talk by uh, Sean Lynch, Bandits Live Comfortably in the Ruins. My name is Adrienne and I'm the Curator of Public Programs here at ACA. Before we start, I would just like to take a moment to acknowledge the Boon people, who are the traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land in which we are meeting today, along with the, with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations. And I would also like to extend our respects to elders past, present, and also to all First Nations people who may be with us in the audience tonight. We are thrilled to partner with City of Melbourne tonight to present this talk, and it's fantastic to be able to host Sean here at ACA tonight. We are very grateful to the City of Melbourne for their ongoing support of us, and thanks in advance, Sean, for your time with us tonight. This evening, Sean will talk for about uh, 40 minutes, and then I'll be bringing a microphone around for any questions you may have. I would now like to introduce Liz Fenwick. She, she is the Public Art Project Lead for Creative Urban Spaces at the City of Melbourne, and she'll be introducing Sean tonight. Would you please join me in welcoming Liz? Thanks, Adrian, and thanks, Aka, for hosting us tonight. Um, when Sean, we were talking to Sean on the phone uh, a few months ago uh, about coming over to Australia and doing some research with Arts Melbourne, and he mentioned at the end of the call, uh, if you want me to do something else while I'm there, I'm pretty handy with the talking, um, which made us all very excited about the possibility of hearing him speak about his work, even though his research in Australia has only just started. Uh, City of Melbourne was, would also like to acknowledge the Boon and Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land on which we work and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. I've got a bit of a bio here. So Sean Lynch is a multimedia artist and storyteller from Kerry, Ireland. He completed his education at the Stadelschule in Frankfurt and currently lives in Dublin. Sean reveals unwritten stories and forgotten histories, extracting alternative readings of place, events, and artifacts. Through his works, he refers to a contemporary form of the Irish bardic tradition. He recently exhibited in the 2019 Yorkshire Sculpture International at the Henry Moore Institute in Leeds, and was the 2019 visiting professor of art at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Since 2006, Sean has worked alongside fellow artist and curator Michelle Horrigan at Askeaton Contemporary Arts in Co County Limerick, organising residencies, exhibitions and publications in Southwest Ireland. As well as representing Ireland at the Venice Biennale in 2015, he has had recent exhibitions in Cornwall, London, Vancouver, Dublin and Boston. And now please welcome him to Melbourne. Hello, everybody. Uh, uh, Christian Capuro just told me that if the talk gets really interesting, the podium will move forward. Uh, if things start getting a little bit dull, I'll move back towards the gallery into the shadows. So just keep an eye out for that as, as we go on. Um, Okay, I'll just go straight into things. Uh, uh, maybe I plant a few ideas in your minds before I start, actually. Uh, two particular strains of thought, I guess, are, are good to point out in terms of my practice. Uh, 
I got a lot of joy finding out about a movement that happened in Central Europe in the mid-1990s called Contextual Art. I'm thinking of artists like René Green or Christian Philippe Muller, who were, in my mind, one of the, the first grouping of people who really started dealing with context and place and how art is imbued into our experiences in a, in a very earnest way. Uh, being on the road, being journeymen journey and journeywomen, uh, figuring things out as they go along. Uh, the other thing I have a particular interest in, in is orality and conversation and narrative and how in some way objects are just containers to be burst open and there are stories inside that we can all share and give us a realistic position of the world that we're living in. Um, so tonight I'm going to talk a little bit about the logic that this particular newspaper clipping from April 1986 has for me. Uh, I'll speak then about a video I made in 2007 with a man called Eddie Lenehan. He's, I guess, the last great storyteller of the country I come from. Um, I'll speak about John DeLorean, who made the DMC-12 sports car, which many of you will be familiar with from the um, motion picture Back to the Future. And then I'll spend the rest of the talk going on about stone carving uh, uh, from the point of view of institutional critique, all right? Uh, so the image you see here uh, is the letters to the editor page of the Irish Times newspaper. Uh, in April 1986, an unusual thing happened on that day's edition. Uh, an image was printed on the paper. Uh, normally it's just a series of letters and it rarely pu publish a photograph. Uh, the image that you can see shows a man uh, up on top of a mast upon a bicycle. Uh, uh, this is uh, at the top of Carantuhal Mountain. It's the highest mountain in Ireland, the closest place to heaven. Uh, you can see in, on the island, you can see this uh, denoted by the quite large metal crucifix in the background. Um, and uh, this monument of the bicycle appeared there as an impromptu tribute to the Irish writer Flann O'Brien uh, and his book The Third Policeman. Um, it was made possible because when the crucifix appeared there in the mid-1950s, um, they put a wind turbine on top of the mast you see in the foreground here, so the wind turbine could uh, drive some electricity to light up the crucifix. So anytime you were lost in the area and needed some inspiration, all you had to do was look at the summit of the mountain for guidance. Uh, harsh uh, winter conditions on the top of the mountain resulted in the turbine falling off. As a result, this became uh, a place that Flann O'Brien could territorialize. Uh, O'Brien uh, wrote a book called At Swim Two Birds. Uh, he published it in 1940. The publisher, uh, James Joyce, uh, read the book with a magnifying glass uh, and proclaimed it to be a modern classic. Uh, needless to say, Joyce was incorrect. It was a postmodern classic uh, for many reasons. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about some of the narratives. Um, his previous book, uh, uh, sorry, At Swim Two Birds, uh, 
they published it all. It was in a warehouse in London ready for distribution. The warehouse got bombed during the Blitz. All the pages of the book went up on fire, and Flann O'Brien was very disappointed and took to the drink for the next 27 years until he died in 1967. Uh, his second book was called uh, The Third Policeman. Uh, he wrote it in 1940. Uh, he never had the confidence to tell anybody he wrote a second novel. Uh, he always claimed he took uh, a drive up to the hills in Donegal. Uh, he opened the door of the car and the manuscript pages flew out with the wind blown into the car all over the landscape. Uh, his wife found it in a, in a drawer once he was dead and got it published in 1967. Um, some important ideas in the book include a scientist who has rationalized that the world is in fact sausage-shaped. Um, and the main thing that I'd like to talk about is his idea around the atomic theory. Uh, if you cycle a bicycle up and down the roads here in Melbourne, I don't know, for a half hour every day for 10 years, uh, atomic theory affects you greatly. Uh, your zest, your personality, and your hunger for life all moves down through your body into the saddle of the bicycle. The molecular exchange that results because of prolonged contact with the bike means that the atoms from the bike move up into your body. So you might meet a character on the street here who could be 40% bicycle. Uh, and, and this is not in very literal terms like someone's going to have a bicycle bell on their head or... Uh, handlebars sprouting out their ears. I give a practical example of how it will affect someone now. The local cops in the town where this is going on have to steal bicycles and move them around so there is a sense of biodiversity, so that people aren't always cycling the one bike and having a monotonous relationship with it, okay? You can see in the image here the man uh, who dressed up uh, like a policeman and went to the top of the mountain is a reference to all this. Um, the atomic theory is very important for me because it explains a lot about how we all live in the one world, all right? Uh, that bicycle has fallen down the summit now in Carantuhal. I spend my summers going around the mountain looking for remains of it. The remains of uh, the bike touch the mountain. The mountain touches Ireland. Ireland touches the sea. The sea touches Australia, touches Melbourne, touches here, touches you right now. Okay, so we're all interconnected in the one place. Uh, Merleau Ponty in 1967, 27 years after Flann O'Brien realized this, called this the flesh of the world. And our existence in some ways cut out of that, okay? Uh, I have a great interest in all this because I think it's a way of trying to figure out the materiality that's in front of us all the time. You could never have a stable identity with the atomic theory, because everything you touch becomes part of you. Every day you get up and you move around the place, you change. There's no chance for middle-class stagnation. There's no chance from letting on that you know exactly who you are all the time, okay? And this sense of digression might grow to be a belief system, 
all right? Uh, and it might be very important to think about that in my mind when you see the image here, because there's a dogma of Catholic guilt in the background, but there's something else, an, an otherness beyond that that might be useful in thinking about the shape of things. Uh, so I'd like to tell people about Flann O'Brien, a really important writer in my mind. The third policeman is the name of the book. Um, I'm going to try to give a couple of examples of that in practice for me in the last while. This is a man called Eddie Lenehan. Uh, Eddie was on television when I was a kid. He had a program on children's television called Ten Minute Tales. It would start with Eddie talking about uh, some forlorn story out in the countryside. Ten minutes later, his face was right up against the camera lens, shouting and spitting some ending very dramatically. Uh, he made quite an impression on my generation. Uh, needless to say, his program only lasted for two seasons on the Children's Commissioning Office. Um, he's a folklorist. He goes around the country uh, collecting stories from old people on the fireplace. Uh, he has a way of working where he'll turn on the tape recorder. Um, the first day is repertoire. It's the stories that have an uh, interesting beginning, a dramatic middle and a tidy enough ending. Uh, uh, the second day will be full of stories in the same format. But he has a theory that by the time you get to the third day, uh, narratives begin to fall apart. And the traditional forms of communication that we all acknowledge and use and so might dissipate often to particular instances. He told me a story about the Ballycidi massacre in 1918. A young lady who had to take all the bodies that had been blown up from the attack there and put them on a horse and cart to move them into the town. How do you represent that in a traditional narrative? Can art even come close to explaining catastrophes of the world as how we see them now? Alexander Kluge would suggest catastrophe can never be represented. Uh, all these things led to Eddie in this situation that you see here. I'd like to point out the formalism between the shape of his beard and the shape of the white thorn bush you see in the background behind him. Uh, Eddie heard from someone up the road from this particular bush that it was the meeting place of Irish fairies before they go into battle with fairies from a region to the north in Connacht. Okay? Uh, the fairies would come there, get organized, and fly off into the sky uh, to have the battle. At the end of the battle, they'd convene around the bush, see who was still alive, and dissipate off into their homes again. In 1997, uh, an EU-funded motorway, a 90 million euro motorway, was mooted to be built in the area around the bush. Uh, Eddie campaigned uh, to save the bush from the motorway steamrolling over. It's a super innocuous looking white thorn bush in the middle of the countryside. Visuality-wise, nothing special, okay? There's loads of these around the place. He said if you knock this bush, the fairies are going to arrive on this site, they're going to get confused because the bush ain't here anymore, and they're going to take their vengeance out on the motorway and all the people driving on it. Um, this is kind of what I'm getting at, is systems of belief on, on the one site, or how uh, we have this notional, um, again, middle-class value a lot of the time that we know the places we're in. Instead, there's always shifting sands. There's always funny stuff going on in the background that we should hold closer as we move forward in our paths in life. Uh, everyone in Ireland laughed at Eddie. They thought it was just some old story of a guy up the road who didn't know any better. Uh, but CNN ended up picking it up 
up and they had it on their bulletins as the and finally story at the end of a half hour of news from all over the world. Uh, the New York Times reporter came down. Uh, he took photographs of the bush and wrote it up in the New York Times. And there's nothing a post-colonial country like Ireland can't handle uh, uh, when exterior forces still come in. The confidence isn't there to say no, okay? And so by feeding this old anarchic story through these systems and these forms of communication, he forced the road builders to move the road around the bush. All right, and I think that's an incredible accomplishment. And some of the things Liz and I have spoken about uh, in the last while around the shape of Australia might have a resonance with this, okay? Um, the Irish fairies are very belligerent characters. Uh, they normally travel underneath the ground. Uh, they have ring forts, old megalithic structures, or the subway stations to that. Uh, they have pathways as well and the bushes to meet in. Uh, their existence in many ways comes from the gaps in knowledge, you know? Uh, if your crops failed, it wasn't the agrarian policies from the Crown in London that did that. It must have been the fairies. If your father got a stroke and he wasn't feeling well, sure, that must have been the fairies as well. It was the only clear explanation for it. So in some way, how gaps in knowledge spurn on other understandings that then have a latency, that they can come back to haunt you in some way, might be a useful way of dealing with materiality. Here's a photograph I got taken. It's 20 meters underneath the ocean in the Atlantic Ocean uh, in August 2009. Uh, when I showed the photograph to my great friend Carl, he was the first person to have seen it, he said it was a pretty interesting photograph, but there was one thing very much wrong with it, that I never got rid of the red eye. Um, I also, you know, like any artist, I'm thinking about my retirement scheme, and I, I'm going to share it with you tonight. Uh, so it's a screensaver for uh, all of us who use computers. And it's going to go from this image of a crab in the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean to this. And you can see the formal similarities between the gullwing doors of a DeLorean car and the shape of a crab there as well. Will I do it one or two more times to convince you that this is a good plan? Yeah? You ready? Okay. Now. Uh, this is a promotional image that was used um, for the DeLorean DMC 12 motor car. Uh, you can see the people in the photograph have much more of an interest in looking at the back of the car rather than the Lear jet that you see behind them. They don't even know it's there. Uh, the DeLorean car was manufactured in Belfast for an 18-month period between 1980 and 81. Uh, the um, De, uh, Belfast doesn't have a great tradition of uh, uh, the automobile industry. The car was, uh, um, a factory was built there. Uh, the car was designed from scratch. 4,000 of the cars were made, uh, exported, not for Irish people to drive on shit roads around the place and all the potholes. <laughs> Uh, in, instead, um, it was for Beverly Hills. Once the car got to the port in Los Angeles, they realized all 4,000 cars had a fault in the steering pin and they couldn't be driven on Californian roads. Uh, John DeLorean, here he is in a play-by interview around that time, uh, was the guy in charge of this operation. Uh, one of the few men in corporate America who had a chin job 
he disappeared for about a fortnight. You could see his regal chin. How could you ever say no to that in a boardroom meeting? Uh, he was a maverick entrepreneur, was the term applied to him, probably in this article too. Uh, he came to Belfast. He slept there one night in his house over four years. Um, he took a lot of money from the Labour government uh, before Thatcher came into power. Uh, that fueled the 4,000 cars that were produced. Uh, suddenly he had a cash flow problem when all these cars were parked up in a big car park uh, in Los Angeles, and he needed to make more money uh, to keep the factory workers' wages paid in Belfast. He started dealing cocaine in Los Angeles. Uh, the FBI caught him in the Sheridan Lorena Hotel, which is near LAX, on the 26th of October, 1981, uh, with a, an entrapment situation where he was dealing $20 million worth of cocaine. The economy was very straightforward. The cocaine money was going straight to pay factory workers' wages the next day in Belfast. And so again, the weight of the world. One thing happens in a hotel room in Los Angeles that means all these factory workers are out of, out of pay the next morning, all right? I was very familiar with the story because my father ran a garage. Uh, DeLorean was sexy. He was always in the news. The car looked like a spaceship. He had a supermodel wife. These were all things people in garages in Ireland at the time talked a lot about. Uh, and my father would take me on these scouting missions of an evening to different scrapyards around Munster to uh, get different parts he needed to fix tractors and trucks the next day. And there was always a, a rumor in those yards, you know. Again, if you talk to a scrap man about his scrap yard, it's not scrap, it's like a library, you know. Everything there's a story to, there's a lineage there. You're part of it in a chain of handling, moving it on from one scenario to another. And I've become very interested in terms, I suppose, conceptual practice when I think of people like Hans Hacke or chains of handling in some way. Because we're all very familiar with the grammar of a car factory being built, okay? They'll uh, break ground, they'll train workers, they'll have the design of the car, it'll start manufacturing, there'll be advertisements. This arc seems very familiar, but in some way in our society, we're very poor at def defining what happens on the way down. What are the things that occur when everything starts falling apart again? And maybe it's useful to study that because it might give those ups and downs a more realistic position in our way of thinking, all right? So I started asking people and going back to these scrapyards that the father used to deal with in the 1980s, and I said, do you ever remember anything about the DeLorean motor car? And of course, most people did. The factory was being cleared out. These large presses that were used to smash out the shapes of the car like this, uh, it was a stainless steel car. DeLorean designed a stainless steel car. He didn't want an aluminium one. Stainless steel doesn't rust. It'll last forever. It's the utopian sports car. Um, this is one of the factories, 25 years later, a very anonymous image. 
Um, this is the chain of handling I'm talking about through scrapyards in Cork, in Limerick, in Dublin, in Galway, until I found out that one of the a grouping of the body parts or these large metal presses, which were worth a lot of money at the time, uh, ended up being taken on a ship, moved to the west coast of Ireland, and unceremoniously dumped into the Atlantic Ocean as anchors for a salmon farm that was being built with European Union money at that time. Uh, after a lot of bickering with the fishermen on the site, this is the scene I managed to recover. And this is the leftovers of the DeLorean factory, right? A uh, couple of visual puns to throw in at this stage. You can see the little fella there kind of looks like he's about to roll down the window in the car, right? <laughs> You know, like art historians have a lot of theories if they're into Jungian philosophy about how one situation is made manifest all over the place, right? Uh, and here's a lobster who now inhabits one of the DeLorean tooling presses as well. Um, and I learned a lot from this lobster. Because who am I to impose my aesthetic agenda on this fella, to uh, rent a barge for the day, maybe a heroic artist, and pull up the remains of a, a dream about a sports car in Ireland to the sea, you know? Um, why should I impose on him? He's grown specifically to the size of the cavity that you see there. So in terms of a tooling press, he's more DeLorean than any DeLorean car ever was. And this is the term I'm getting at, DeLorean-ness. could think again about the notion of the uh, ato uh, uh, atomic theory and everything you touch becomes part of you. So in some evocation of that, the lobster is a DeLorean car, all right? Uh, so we decided not to take them up out of the ocean bed. The images you see here are some gallery presentations of me trying to make a DeLorean car by handmade means instead of by industrial ways. Uh, we started with the top down, it didn't work of course. These fragments would be placed around the gallery uh, trying to emphasize the need to divide that notion of labor from product, okay? That ideas of labor and making and industrial processes, let them be free, let them be loosened up, and then to try and derive an aesthetic and an understanding through that. All the time with these creatures looking down at you, knowing they're as much part of the story as anything else. Um, so, Let's get to the big thing, which is embodied knowledge, and how ways we think about things that maybe uh, are denied to us in some way, and how to be speculative around clustering together thoughts or moments. And I think art making is a really useful medium for this, particular, particularly the format of exhibition making, because the great privilege that being an artist gives you is to make a public presentation or a public statement for whatever it is, four weeks or three months in a gallery space. And then, in some way, being able to reject your own findings at the end of that time and begin again, okay? And it's a great thing because, in some way, it gives you the chance to grow with people or just expose your research for a certain period of time. When the DeLorean project was made, for example, a lot of guys who worked in the factory would come to the shows and tell me more about their life on the factory floor or other pieces of gossip about DeLorean. Uh, and then the next time the piece would be showed, I'd try and incorporate that in. And it really helps 
uh, a movement through the world because you don't think all the time of yourself as an expert, all right? You become someone who's a shepherd and trying to push the material on in some way and keep it all together, goading it into the next field without really knowing how that's going to end up. Um, and I'm going to talk about one more project in that regard. Uh, I'm going to show a couple of installation images, first of all, to give you a sense of how that uh, materially gets constructed in a gallery space, and then talk a good bit about a man who was born in Ireland in the 1820s or 1830s and got up to some terrible mischief in Victorian England. Uh, this is an exhibition called A Blow-by-Blow Blow Account of Stone Carving in Oxford. Uh, it was shown uh, in, I suppose, in its first run in three gallery spaces in Modern Art Oxford, in the Hugh Lane Gallery in Dublin, and at the CRPC in Bordeaux over a two or three year period. And it had different iterations in each place, and a book went along with it as well. Um, and I'm going to show a couple of the installation images to give you a sense of how you would encounter this as a kind of cold call when you'd walk into a gallery space first. This is the cafe space in Modern Art Oxford. Uh, they would have used it predominantly in the 1970s as an exhibition space. Brothers would have projected on the wall there, for example, in the background. Um, I'm not responsible for the daffodils. They're just a nice touch. Okay, uh, there's two things of mine that I'd like to point out. First of all, an uh, uh, archival display of material uh, in a vitrine case. And then this is a plastic sign that was pulled off of a fried chicken shop in London and transported to the gallery. That's Chucky the Chicken. Uh, he's the mascot or the emblem of favorite fried chicken, which I'm going to talk a little bit about in a few minutes. Uh, and then in the foreground, you see another case with a kind of innocuous enough looking rock that was pillaged from the Pitt Rivers Museum. It's an ethnographical museum based in the University of Oxford. Uh, here's the case I, I found it in, and the, the curator there, Dan Hicks, was interested in it, having a little trip outside of the museum for a period of time. You can see the writing here. Uh, natural stone resembling a monkey's head. Will I just twist it a little so you can see the monkey's head? Yeah. <laughs> All right. And, and this is a great time uh, for curators to be around, you know? Uh, uh, so as much as all this stuff is coming from all the far-flung places of the world, uh, Marsden, who was the, sorry, Henry Balfour, who was the cur inaugural curator of the Pitt Rivers, was just walking into work one day trying to figure out how you balance taking everybody else's stuff and putting it in museums. And he looked down on the ground and he saw a stone that looked like a monkey. And he just brought it in, gave it an accession number, and it became part of the collection there. Uh, again, this is Chucky the Fried Chicken in proximity nearby. Um, you can see some of the grime from the London streets on the bottom of the signage there. This was a light box in operation there for 15 years on the South Lambeth Road. Uh, you go through the gift shop, uh, you've got these napkins that you, you know, if it's greasy, the fried chicken. Uh, and then you want to clean your hands afterwards, so it's a sign of a high-end fried chicken shop if they've got a logo on their napkins and also on these kind of wet towels that you get there too. So this is put in with the tack jewelry that's in the case there. Um, 
a box that you get a chicken burger in, just unceremoniously dumped in the space. Most people were a little confused. Maybe someone was eating a chicken burger in the gift shop and just left it there. Uh, and then nearby, a carving of a stone monkey uh, made by my great friend Stephen Burke. Uh, we're never one for wasting stone, so we piled up all the leftover pieces of stone in a Robert Smithson-esque styling on the ground there. Cue loads of jokes, of course, with the folk who clean the gallery every day. Uh, and then outside in one of the spaces, there's a stone carving symposium going hell for leather for the uh, duration of the show. Uh, the carvers I worked with, again, uh, symposium, as you all know, means to come together and drink. Uh, that's the Latin root for it. Uh, so it's thirsty work, the stone carving. If you read any of the romantic stories from Ireland, is you became an apprentice in stone carving, your first job was to go to the pub at 11 o'clock in the morning and bring all those pints of drink up the scaffold without spilling a drop. Um, and uh, all these disparate elements, if you want to call them then, come together in a projection room where there's a slideshow going on that's about 20 minutes long uh, that tries to knit these things together into a story. So I like the idea sometimes at exhibitions that you go in and you see three or four rooms and then there's a kind of storytelling central room or not a didactic one necessarily, but it, it kind of has a sense of conversation or gossip about it, you know? Like things you heard in the street as you were walking by, or, or incidental things that might build up to a persuasive argument that might move you outside the social hegemonies that we all have to put up with in terms of how narration is normally given to us in the time we live in nowadays. Uh, you can see some owls in the projection room. They were pilfered from the Natural History Museum. Seemed like the most appropriate place to put them in the gallery in a darkened room, in my opinion. Uh, and all this comes together to explain a story about this man. His name is James O'Shea. This is the only photograph I've ever found of him. It was taken in 1859. He's posing in front of a window he carved on the Natural History Museum in Oxford, which is part of the complex where the Pitt Rivers is and where I took those owls from. Um, O'Shea's biography, if you want to call it that, is non-existent. Nobody knows where he was born in Ireland. Two towns still fight over he was born in those towns. Callan in County Kilkenny, Ballyhooley in County Cork. No one's particularly sure of when he was born either, sometime in the 1820s or 1830s. Nobody knows where he got his fine stone carving skills from either. Maybe he intercepted an Italian on the road at the bottom of the laneway one night time and asked him to spill all the secrets. But somehow he arrived in Dublin in the early 1850s as a fully-fledged virtuoso stone carver. Uh, and this is the reason for showing all these installation images is to try and tell you his story and why I think he's an important figure in the traditions of institutional critique, all right? So I'll have a go at linking all those things together now. Um, 
how do you tell the story of someone who doesn't have a biography, who survived the potato famine in Ireland? Eight million people in the country in 1842, four million people left in the country in 1849, two million of them died, another two million came to Australia, to industrial England, to Argentina, to the United States. Uh, where to begin a story about him? Let's try fried chicken shops in London in the late 1980s, okay? Uh, here's a fine piece of architectural propriety uh, for the favorite fried chicken shop, the zebra crossing that leads you directly to the doorway there, in case you wondered where you were gonna go. Uh, KFC uh, started to rejig their spatial policy for where their franchises were going to be placed in London in the late 1980s. They no longer wanted them on uh, neighborhoods like this where you have a grocer's and a laundrette on either side. Instead, they moved them to high street locations or uh, drive-through retail parks. Uh, as a result, 12 different franchises that formerly wore KFC ended up with no franchise franchise identity, they grouped together in summer 1987 and came up with favorite fried chicken. Um, here's a, an early version of Chucky the Chicken. He was first drawn by, uh, for me, as unyet identified art student from South End Polytechnic outside of London uh, during their summer holidays. Uh, as time goes by, uh, he evolves, and that's a kind of important term as I talk, he evolves into different shapes. This was an attempted makeover in the early 1990s. Uh, who came first, the chicken or the egg effect? Uh, crossed with a vague Winston Churchill reference in there as well, I think. Uh, and then finally they settled on Chucky the Chicken. There's now over 200 franchises in different parts of the UK. There's two in Amsterdam as well, and there's one in Hamburg in Germany. Any self-respecting chicken franchise, of course, wants to check out how the hamburgers are going in Hamburg and challenge them to break the dichotomy of that existence. Uh, the site that you see here has a particular interest for me. Um, Here's a photograph of the inside of the fried chicken shop. Um, on this particular location, sometime in the 1630s, a man called John Tradescant appeared on the scene. Tradescant was a, a Dutch Huguenot uh, who made his living uh, doing up all the fancy gardens of the aristocracy. He would make trips to Siberia. Uh, he even went to Virginia and America to pick up special specimens, and he'd bring them back and he'd plant them in rich people's houses. Along the way, he realized he was gathering quite a collection of ephemera, and he decided to open his own museum where this fried chicken shop is sometime in the 1630s. The museum is called the Ark. Uh, it's the first, uh, so of course there was wunderkammers uh, for rich people before this. Uh, he becomes the first person to open a space in the English-speaking world ever. There was a public space for looking at things. This is the first museum in that regard, okay? Anyone could go in for the equivalent of two pounds sterling today and see his collection. Uh, some of the specimens he had there were instruments that were used in circumcision, uh, tobacco from Turkey, sandals, 
Um, what you see here is a particular kind of plant he found in Scotland. Uh, the plant uh, has a sheep on the top of it, so when the sheep eats all the grass in its vicinity, then the plant dies. Uh, so you can begin to see a good few gaps in knowledge in terms of how this collection was beginning to form, all right? It's 130 years before the British Museum. Um, there's no plaque or anything on the site about this. Um, he had various people would come and visit him there. Uh, a guy called Elias Ashmole came. He uh, was a regular visitor to the museum. He had money. He said, let's do a catalogue. Uh, of your collection here, and this is one of the pages of the catalogue. Uh, you can see up on the very top a dodar from the island of Mauritius, uh, not, not able to fly for being too big. Uh, so a, a dodo was on the site and in the collection. It's not recorded whether the dodo was alive or dead by the time it got to London. Um, more recent research into dodos uh, has told us that they're not the fat creatures as they're portrayed in museum cases, but they actually got fat on the way over from Mauritius because they didn't get to move around the ship very much, okay? Uh, and this is how that dodo is portrayed in the Natural History Museum in Oxford. Uh, Ashmole got Tradescan drunk one Christmas, he got him to sign a piece of paper saying, when you die, all your stuff is mine. Uh, Tradescan died. Uh, Ashmole uh, came by with the horse and cart, cleared out the whole museum, moved it out the road to Oxford, and made the first museum in Oxford called the Ashmolean Museum. All right? uh, the dodo bones that were on site in the South Lambeth Road ended up there as well. Um, this is how museums normally start, isn't it? Like someone saying, I like your stuff, give it to me, <laughs> right? And uh, it, it um, but I have this idea in some sense that there might be a shadow in this story, that maybe not all of that dodo disappeared. Uh, from this particular site, that in fact some of those atoms that were left behind stayed there and they continued to evolve. The dodo finally got a chance to evolve into Chucky the chicken, okay? And so these shadows might be a good way now to begin to go back to O'Shea. Here he is in that one photograph again, uh, Dante Rossetti, the great pre-Raphaelite writer and painter, uh, told us in his journals that O'Shea did in fact have a red beard. He was a true red-bearded Irishman. Uh, here's some of his carvings he completed on his journey to Oxford on, on uh, buildings in Trinity College in Dublin. Imagine him staring at the bush at the end of the, the Boherine or small road for as long as he could and then turned around and carved it directly in stone. Here he is fooling the birds. Uh, the birds don't realize they're not real berries. They're coming down to take them off his stone carving. Uh, here's a falcon and a snake jumping up behind it. And of course, there's a humanoid form pulling the tail of a cat with a mouse in its mouth, right? It takes a lot of time to get the chisel right in under to get those sense of depth that you see there, all right? Uh, he petitions uh, to get work in the new museum he heard was being built in the center of the empire in Oxford. Uh, he makes a 
a photographic portfolio of his work, sends it to the Victorian critic John Ruskin, who had a guiding hand in what the museum should look like. And he arrives in sight in Oxford with his brother, John, and his nephew, Edward Whelan, in late 1859. Uh, here's one more piece from Dublin. Uh, this is, of course, the beginning of a lot of the problems he was going to have in Oxford. Uh, this is the evolution of man. How do we know it's man? Well, he's got his hands there, touching his feet, realizing he can stand up straight, and more importantly, he's scratching his arse. Uh, it's a whole kind of legacy about Irish people in, in England looking like monkeys, you know. Here's three versions uh, that are portrayed in Punch magazine, a tabloid newspaper that was very prominent uh, at the time. O'Shea would have picked it up once he arrived off the boat in Liverpool on the way down. Uh, this is the simple Irish man looks a little bit like a monkey, will talk to you all day long about everything he can think about and give you good directions to wherever you're going at the end. Uh, here's 10 years later, drunken Irish men outside of the bar looking a bit like monkeys, shouting and roaring about independence and freedom, but not really wanting to be too violent about it. The Catholic guilt would catch up with you if you did that. Uh, and here's the true Irish man with sharp teeth and fangs ready to attack anyone for the freedom of the essence of their country. O'Shea would have known these idioms. He was fond enough of carving the monkeys as well. Here's the IRA portrayed in the Houston Chronicle in the 1980s as chimpanzees holding bombs. Uh, a lot of cultural historians at home uh, write about this, saying it's not unique. Of course, every country were portrayed as an animal by the center of the empire. Uh, but this kind of keeps the fuel fired in, in terms of having a peripheral country beside Britain all the time. Uh, here's another carving O'Shea did before he went to, uh, to Oxford. It's monkeys playing billiards on the gentleman's club in Dublin, the only place you could get decent caviar in Ireland at the time. Uh, Flann O'Brien uh, writes about this in the 1950s, saying uh, it's a fine bit of carving, but the only problem with it is, in the rules of billiards, it never says what a monkey can or can't do with their tail. And so here's the setup O'Shea inhabits by the time he gets to Oxford. I just want to point out a couple of things, if, if that's He's up and down that scaffold, carving wherever he can, all right? Uh, Ruskin says to him, you were the embodiment of the medieval craftsman. You can carve whatever you want on that building, okay? No one here is going to tell you what you should be doing. Um, the days are long for him. Uh, he gets paid uh, the equivalent of, what, let me see, about 28 Australian dollars a day. Um, uh, Ruskin uh, talks a lot uh, about O'Shea and his sense of economy because he's 70% more efficient than any other Victorian stone carver. This is because he doesn't work up clay models. Uh, 
He's not bothered with that. Uh, he doesn't do detailed drawings to show the foreman of what he wants to carve onto the front of the building. Instead, he goes down every morning to the botanical gardens. He takes plants out of there. He brings them up the scaffold, puts them beside him, has one look at them, and starts carving directly into stone what he sees. Uh, Ruskin gives him a five-pound prize in a, in a carving competition in Manchester at the time as well. Him and his brother are delighted to be there. Okay? They see specimens that have been brought from the edge of the empire into the centre that an Irishman had never come by before. Norwegian pine cones, you know? Different animals stuffed in taxidermy, left up on shelves in dusty rooms that they can look at. They walk around town at night, looking at all the medieval carving in different places as well. It's a pretty good setup for an artist, you know? Imagine that nowadays, a public arts game where someone said, you can carve whatever you want onto any building around the place, because you look like you're able to do it. Okay, so this gives you a sense of his work. Uh, on the left-hand side is one of the windows that would be left by the stonemasons there, and on the right-hand side is after O'Shea's intervention on the site. Uh, they tell him, look, you know, you, you should only really carve little parts of the window because if you carve all of the window in this manner, it means for the sense of symmetry on this Gothic Revival building, you'll have to carve all the windows as much as that, you know? Uh, so he begins a hustle with them because he realizes if he carves one window in this way, he'll get more work off these guys because all the windows are going to have to be carved in this manner, right? Uh, and this is where the trouble begins. This is known as the cat window in common parlance in Oxford. You look up, it's on the third story high up above you. Uh, O'Shea began carving monkeys on the front of this building. Uh, this got told to the still Catholic hierarchy of the University of Oxford. They came down to the site and they said to him, you can't carve a monkey on the front of the most important museum building that's been made in the empire at this time, which is an incarnation of all the great things that were brought by Tradescant here and the Ashmolean in the 1530s, because if we have a monkey on the front of our building, it looked like we're endorsing Darwin's theories of evolution, which will be published in seven months' time, all right? So they said, change that monkey into something else. So as a result, you see these feline characters moving up and down on the arches there, which I think if you look closely, and here's a drawing demonstrating uh, from the Bodleian Library, uh, showing the monkey figures and how he would have loved to have done the carving. Uh, instead, the, the, the autonomy of a monkey is sometimes seen in the bodies there, but they've got cat heads, okay? He was brokenhearted, you know, being brought to the situation and then being told, that uh, all you can do is carve what we tell you, you know? Uh, all the principles and hopes of artisanship breaking through into something else, that you no longer imitated, that you were the true controller of the material in front of you were all gone. Uh, he had fights, he had arguments, uh, his brother walked off site, went to Ireland over it. He stayed there, sometimes would go out into the countryside and odd jobs, but would be back around the yard again, hoping the situation had solved itself. Asking people what the story with Darwin was, you know, has that been solved yet? Have people come around to their senses that a monkey will appear on this building? Uh, he was fired off site. He came back to the main doorway one morning with a hammer, 
with his with his uh, with his hammer, with his chisel, and with a ladder, he mounted up there. And on the right hand side that you can see here, he started making impromptu carvings into the stone there of parrots and owls. Parrots repeating themselves over and over again, like the university. Parrots repeating themselves over and over again like the university. Owls, like the wise authorities of the university. Parrots repeating themselves over and over again like the university. Except he didn't talk like that, you know? His dialect wasn't uh, from the middle of Oxford. He was a lad from the edge of the empire. He wouldn't have said parrots. He would have said parrots repeating themselves over and over again. Owls, the wise authorities of the museum. Will I point them out? Yeah? These still remain on the site to this day, on the, the, the prime entranceway into these museums. The exhibition I produced was nothing more than a signpost to point this out, that this guy was able to in some way make this protest. They are parrots, they're not parrots. If you think about medieval representation, if a form is not clear in itself, it hasn't got to the stage of being representable. Uh, th this is another form, a form coming in being, you know, a realization of a situation, but also his relationship to the stone and the whole scenario that he found himself involved in. Um, there's one more thing I need to talk about on the cat window. Um, these are no ordinary cats he carved there. He instead carved the king cat of Kesh Koran onto the window. The king cat of Kesh Koran was a signature sculpture, sculpture by Angaban Sayer, who in Irish myth was the first stone carver that appeared in the world. He never knew what to do with himself walking through the stony landscape every day. He only could use stone as a pillow to rest his head upon at night time and gaze at the stars. Then one day a bag of tools landed in front of him and he suddenly knew what to do with them. So he decided to go into the next nearest town and look for work carving on the front of a building there. The story was not written down in 1859, it was first written down in 1927 by uh, Ella Young, uh, an expat living in San Francisco. Uh, Yates would have crossed the road not to talk to her in Dublin. She moved to San Francisco, got uh, endowed a professorship in Berkeley, became a tree hugger and a very important figure. And she wrote down the story of a Gabon Sayre. But O'Shea would have known that from hanging around at night time, wanting to know who was the first person who carved a piece of stone in the place he came from. So I'm going to read a little bit about the story of Uncle Bon and what happened when he went into that town that fateful day. Walking at his will, he came to a place where a great chief's adoon was a building. The folk that fashioned it were disputing and arguing among themselves. It is right, said one, who had an air of authority and a red cloak on him, it is right that on this lintel there should be an emblem to show the power of the doon, an emblem to put loosening of joints and terror upon evildoers. 
It is more fitting, said another, that the man who carves the emblem should be honoured in it. Nay, said it had heard, that the man who raised the stone should be honoured in it. I myself should be honoured. And so the clash of tongues and opinions went on. The blessing of the sun and the colours of the day to you, said the Gabon. Have you work for a craftsman? Oh, what craftsmen are you, they say, that come hither a-begging? The world runs after the master craftsman. We have no need of bunglers. But I am a master craftsman. Hear him, cried they all. Where are your apprentices? What dunes have you built? What jewels have you carved? Tell us that. You're a man with ill-cobbled brogues and burrs in his coat. A likely lie. The city authorities then go for their lunch. Uh, as they're gone for lunch, uh, the Gabon takes his stone carving tools out and begins to carve on the front of a building. When they come back from lunch, the story continues. The first that caught sight of it cried out. The cry ran from man to man of them. There was hand clapping and amazement. The Gabon had carved the king cat of Keshkaran, more terrible than a tiger. The cat crouched midway in the lentil, and on either side of him spread a tail, a tail wordy that royal one. Brustling with fierceness it spread, it slid along on either side, with insinuating grace and with infinite coming, losing itself at the last in loops and twists and foliations and intricacies that spread and returned and established themselves in a mysterious, magical, spell-knotted forest of emblems behind that flat-eared, threatening head. O oh, master craftsmen, our choice you are, our treasure, stay with us. The chief seat in the assembly shall be yours. The chief voice in our council shall be yours. Stay with us, royal craftsmen. I have the wisdom of running water and growing grass, said Angabon, and my feet must carry me further. Still water is stagnant. May every day bring laughter to your mouths and skill to your fingers. May the cloaks of night bring wisdom. And he left them. Often he was wandering after that when the sun was proud in the sky and often drank honey mead in fairy mounds. He saw the mountain sprites dancing. The king had a Kesh Koran. His job was to be, protect the entranceway into hell in caves around Ireland. So if it looked like you were going to fall into hell, he was the character who either told you to run away or he caught you and threw you in there. By carving this figure on the front of a museum building, it makes the suggestion that all the things inside the window in that museum are a form of hell. It's a hellhole. Okay, All those animals that were alive are dead and stuffed in there. All the stories that could be told, all the different things are now static behind display cases. And so this is why I propose to you in the spirit of institutional critique, people like Andrea Fraser, Hans Hacke, and all these brave souls that in some way make our life bearable as we move our way through it, that O'Shea might be one of them. He might have the latency of that time as well. His ideas just in some way took longer for to reach us you know? Um, so I commend him to you as an artist. 
uh, take him into your hands, into your hearts, and into your heads. Uh, his sense of devilment is something we should all be at. And these are things I learned by trying to figure out who he was and what this place was. I'm really happy to share them with you tonight. Thank you. We have some time for some questions. Does anybody have a question? Just pop your hand up. I'll bring the microphone round to you. Um, thanks very much for that. that uh, I don't know how I can ask a question, except I will anyway. Um, the, so you mentioned the third policeman in the beginning, which is really he does a sort of a cycle through... The hero does a cycle through the book, and it's he comes back and realizes he's repeating himself. So it's like a record, really. It's a sort of a recording, and it's, it's, it's about recording, I thought. What? Okay. Okay, I won't... Yeah, yeah right. Well, maybe I have. <laughs> okay, yes. And then you mentioned Eddie O'Shea, so... And the hell, which, uh, of course, I will spoil the ending. He's gone to hell in The Third Policeman. Yeah. And uh, so the hell is in the museum there. And there's this antidote of the, the, the cat. Um, he's, he, he's sculpted by... And he's, he's sculpted there saying, this place is hell. And um, so you point out the institutional critique and the and the really the the industry of art which never lives up to the institute critique it always sort of does what happens there it it fires the guy you know he's yeah is is that kind of uh, cl more is that clear about what you're actually saying yeah, I mean, that's the state of play at the moment, I guess, yeah. okay? Mm -hmm. But public rhetoric and public allegory are things to be continued, and it's always an argument and a fight to make them visible, you know? So as much as the, the heroic gesture getting thrown off the site is part of the story, something that interests me in the tradition of the myth and magic of the artist, uh, these are not always entirely... Uh, visible structures nowadays, you know? So to wonder about, the, again, the latency of a carving half the world away here um, that rests there until someone has enough time, someone like me has enough time to begin to decode it or do field work around it, that's a lot of the operational nature of what I'm about, you know, or what the practice is about. And again, to shepherd these kind of situations on. So, you know, these things are moving all the time, you know, and they're shifting sands in them. And so it's about identifying certain modal points, whether they're nowadays or whether they've happened way back in the past, that in some way don't become a piece of heritage, but they still feel like there's a latency about talking about them all the time. Is that useful? Yeah, yeah. Like, also part of it for me is not being an expert in this material. You know, like the nature of making exhibitions nowadays, like normally two a year or, you know, the, they're predefined times. There's a certain cycle around 
making the decision after a certain point of research that you're going to share it with people, um, and also being able to have the chance of criticizing that as a process at the end of it, you know. Um, I get a lot out of this guy. He helps me out, you know, and I'm genuinely enthusiastic about him. Uh, so I want to make sure people know about him too, you know. So they're very simple desires in one sense, outside of some of the critiques uh, that you're on about. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay. Uh, firstly, I just want to say thank you for the, the talk, particularly the part about O'Shea, because I've been to Ashmolean and looked at those um, exact windows oh, before, just uh, last year, and yeah. was also wondering who this artist was and whatnot, and so yeah. that's really wonderful. And also this idea of sharing your favorite artist, which I think is one of the, my favorite things about talking with other artists. And you mentioned Christian Philip Muller, who's an artist very dear to me, I really like his work. Great. I, I'm just interested though in like how you, uh, I suppose, come to work on the particular things that you're working on. Like, how do, you, how, how do you, these investigations begin for you? Uh, I mean, I, I can give very pointed examples, maybe. Like, I saw Eddie on TV when I was a kid. Yeah. The DeLorean stuff, the father beating his dinner, going on about this guy, mm -hmm. you know? Um, with O'Shea, he was always lamped into art college lectures just in the last five minutes of people who should be mentioned in the lecture, but nobody really had unpacked the entirety of what he was about. Um, so they're circumstantial. Um, sometimes I get asked to make exhibitions where there's a, 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 the idea of a site involved, that maybe it's coming to somewhere and trying to unpack narratives that are there. That's always a very interesting process. It can be by chance, it's just very chance occurrence or something goes on that sticks in the head and in some way seems like to be an interesting thing to operate around for a period of time. Um, other things can work the other way where, you know, a lot of the time you start realizing in the, I hate using ecology, the ecosystem that uh, artists or my peers work in, that there's a certain gap in knowledge there that maybe we should all radiate around and think might be useful to resonate for the public good, you know? So, um, and that's why, again, Rene Green and people like that are so interesting around how they dealt with this sort of stuff. But the, the one thing I would say, um, and this kind of comes from my experience of being at this for 15 or 20 years in earnest, is that there used to be these scenarios where uh, you get a phone call and you'd be told to get the train down to some town you hadn't heard of before, and then you get to the town, and then there's folk there who reckon you might be able to find the essence of that place, you know? That you could find, like kind of dig around and shine up something real good that would make everyone feel like it was a good place. And that would be like uh, being a perfumer or being able to distill something down in that sense. And 
I certainly think with the rise of site-specific art in the 90s and its kind of uh, provincialization in places like where I'm from, which is uh, Midland and off art scene, that's on tape, <laughs> uh, is, is that this was a common flaw, you know, that this, this would happen. Um, and the much more interesting thing is ontological chaos, you know, and all these things falling up on top of each other, you know, and how one uh, gesture supersedes another and they all move around and there's always things on the go all the time. And that's maybe why O'Brien is interesting in that sense. But when you spoke about the third policeman there yourself with the question, the, the sense of things zip, zipping by, you know, and trying to slow them down because there is an inherent energy or latency because they're moving around still and they're there for you. You know, so it's about just trying to begin to establish things like that, I guess. Yeah, it, I, that's not really an answer. It's kind of like you live a life as well. You know, that's also part of it. Like, yeah, and like I, I, I work a small bit in academia, but not very much. And these are in research projects in that sense. You know, they come from a lineage of trying to uh, understand and processes of virality and storytelling and how they can be pushed back down and pulled back up again and have different paces. Yeah, yeah, it keeps me out of trouble. And the general rule with this kind of work, you know, especially when you get a read in the newspaper going, oh, it's a very complex show or something like that, you know, the general rule is if you can't convince somebody about your exhibition, you better confuse them real good. <laughs> okay. Um, if anybody has one more quick question, we can do one more. Yep. Um, uh, maybe it's a quick question, I'm not sure. But um, I was just wondering if um, it's not really so much to do with the talk, but um, you mentioned in the intro, it was mentioned that you're here for um, doing some research or maybe making a new work. Um, and would you want to talk maybe about what, where that's going to start, or I don't, maybe you don't want to talk about it. Yeah, I can yeah. talk a little. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. We've spent, Liz and I and John Cunningham and the team, we've spent a good bit of time gandering around Melbourne in the last two weeks. Uh, it's an incredibly interesting city in terms of urban allegory for me, you know, and timescales as well, because how things occur here at different paces than the very stradated, anglicized version of history making I'm familiar with, you know, and how that stretches out and pulls in every which way. So I have another two weeks here. I went to the State, uh, the state Library of Victoria today for the first time. I came by the old uh, newspaper index cards that they, they took on from all the different newspapers um, because the newspapers were throwing them out. You know, so they've got these incredible structures. For some reason, every case I pulled out, it had an entry on uranium. <laughs> you know, uh, or uh, yeah. So it's like again how information is chopped up and played around with. So I, I, after that, I couldn't tell you where it'll end up going. You know, um, and and so I'll come back next year for a few months and keep up that sort of behaviour. And I've just been joking with.
people a little bit, you know, when you get to a new town, um, I've just been saying to folk, well, as long as you've got the bail money for me, I'll be happy enough. <laughs> so, you know, it should be a bit of devilment and trouble to get to understanding how an artwork is being made and bail money should be part of that package, in my view. <laughs> is that okay? It's a little cheeky, but I'm just trying to figure it out. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I think we might um, finish up tonight, but thanks everyone to coming, for coming. Um, thanks so much to the City of Melbourne for help putting it together. And also, would you please join me in thanking our speaker, Sean Lynch. Thanks.